And my name is Dan. I'm on a service pastor here, and I also get the thrill of bringing the main message. We do that out of the Bible. You're at a gospel-centered church. What does that mean? It means a lot of things, but one of the things it means is that you're at a church who is free from guilt, religion, and hype because the gospel doesn't need any of that. Gospel isn't religion. It doesn't need hype, and um, it certainly doesn't bring guilt. It brings freedom from all those things, and we're going to look today at a passage of Scripture in Mark chapter 9, and basically we see this um, encounter that someone has with Jesus, and it goes like this. There's an argument that kind of turns up and turns out, and in this argument, Jesus comes up on the argument, and he says, what's this all about? And somebody says, well, this is what's happening. There's, I have this the son of mine, he's, full, he's got a demon, and the demon's throwing him on the ground, and he's foaming at the mouth, and he's getting all rigid, and he's having these seizures. And so I asked the disciples to try and deliver him from the demon, and they couldn't. And then, after that, the, um, Jesus responds, and He says, how long do I have to put up with you faithless people? How long am I going to have to put up with, um, how long must I be with you? And so Jesus says, bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy to Jesus. Um, and when the evil spirit saw Jesus, He throws the boy on the ground. He starts all the same uh, manifestation, manifestations. He's writhing on the ground, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus says, how long has this been happening? And um, the boy's father says, well, since he was a little boy, this has been happening. But then, the, but then the boy's father says something really profound to Jesus. He says, have mercy on us and help us if you can. And Jesus responds right away and he says, what do you mean if, if I can help? What do you mean to say, if I can help? And he says that uh, Jesus said, anything is possible if a person believes. And then, this is where we're going to kind of dig in again today, this father of this child who is in desperate need of healing and deliverance says to Jesus these words. He says, the father instantly cried out to Jesus, I do believe that you can heal him and you can deliver him. I do believe it, but... Help me. I need help. I believe as much as I can, but I need some help to overcome my unbelief. And we see this tension here between somebody who comes to Jesus because he believes, but then says at the same time, but I'm going to need your help because there's still unbelief there. And last week we talked about as real, genuine Christians embracing the tension that we have confidence in Jesus but there is some unbelief in some areas of our lives that we really need God to help with. And by coming to God, we're trusting, we're expressing our own belief. And so, um, if I asked you what was the greatest sin, some of you would probably, your mind would go to some very, very heinous sins, murder and maybe um, trafficking or, or uh, probably a whole list of other things, right, that um, people would come up with sexual sin against innocent minors, and, you know, some of you who've read the Bible were like, would probably go to, um, well, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Once that happens, you know, sayonara. That's the, that's the end uh, for you. There's no coming back. But uh, uh, if you kind of do a, um, a scan of the Bible, the, the, the sin that Jesus addresses most deeply and most, most harshly is the sin of unbelief. Unbelief. Basically, trusting and treasuring oneself above God, 
um, and believing in or trusting in my own way instead of God's way. Uh, basically, what it means is doing what Adam and Eve did, and that is living for your own glory and somehow finding a way to try to fit God underneath your authority, your uh, over your life and your beliefs and, and so on. So let's get oriented real quick with last week's starting point. What is belief? We, we talked about how belief is transformation. It's not just the, the, um, the gathering of information, right? It's not just mental assent. It's not just learning more about God. Instead, we said it's something fundamental changes. When you believe, there's a fundamental change, a fundamental transformation, and isn't that what our entire Christian life is built on? Our entire Christian life is built on this fun foundation as far as our part of faith. Christianity is built on transformational belief. The idea that when you believe, things change. It's not just agreeing with the truth. It's not just acknowledging the truth. I had a pastor who used to say, one of the biggest mistakes we can make as a human being is to hear the truth and then give it a salute. Like, I respect it, I agree with it, I acknowledge it, and then go on our way. That's not belief. That isn't belief. It's agreeing or, or as our author would say, mental assent. So Paul told the Philippians, he said something very specific, believe in the Lord and you will be saved. There is a follow-up action that takes place which is transformational. So when we look at belief, we have to recognize that a belief that leads to salvation must be more than just a mental assent of gathering more information. By the way, we also mentioned that even the demons, what do they do according to Scripture? Even the demons believe. Right? They don't have saving faith, but they believe. They, they think that this whole Christian truth and the gospel is true. Jesus is a true person. So um, this quote here, this sort of belief is what the Bible calls faith. So we're talking about belief, which is faith. And um, there's a supplemental reading I'd love for you to uh, jump in on. We can find it on our website under um, Grow on Your Own, the, the resources, but written by Barnabas Piper called Help My Unbelief. Lots of insights, very um, similar to what I'm bringing to you and, and could be some helpful supplemental reading if you like to do that where you're learning in between Sundays to grow on your own. So um, one of my guilty pleasures, there's a couple of TV shows that I find myself gravitating to, uh, taking a little... Um, downtime to decompress, and uh, almost all of them are documentary in style, but one of the ones I can't really, it's a guilty pleasure, is, is called The First 48. The First 48 is a, basically it's a documentary style where um, the show follows homicide investigators as they try to solve a case of homicide, and you get to follow along with the whole story. In fact, a lot of the show was filmed um, in Tulsa, where I went to school for four years, so I get to see um, some of the landscape, some of the different cityscape that I'm very familiar with. Um, but they are, they're real homicide investigators solving real homicides, and, the, and it's documented, and you get to follow along to see at the end if they crack the case. And I really enjoy following it, social psychology of it, the, um, you know, all kinds of aspects of it that I really enjoy. But there is a particular kind of episode that I loathe. When I were like, those very few times that I want to um, pull the TV off the wall. I'm an easygoing guy. I don't have, uh, uh, I don't, I don't um, get my feathers ruffled very often. But when the show ends and they don't solve the crime, I am personally, I feel like I just had my time stolen from me. I think things like, are you kidding me? What a waste of my time. If this wasn't a waste of time before, it's 
for sure a waste of time now. There's no, you telling me that this, you know, how they do the little fade the, the text in and you get to read what happened and then you, what you read what happened is killer's still at large. They haven't solved the case. It's a cold case. If you have any information, call this number. I'm like, no way. No way. This is how, this is, so I feel that way every time there's an unsolved, I feel like this is a terrible show. I'm never watching this again next episode. You know how that goes. Now, we have endless TV shows and books and now podcasts and movies where there is a mystery in the storyline and the primary plot of the entire format of the show, the book, the podcast is to solve a mystery. And I wonder... Um, Number one, I wonder how did mysteries get so popular? And number two, would they ever, ever, ever be that popular if none of them were ever solved? If at the end of your Netflix suspense, you thr- uh, um, uh, um, what do they call that, like a thriller, right? This, this cliffhanger suspense thriller, if it's never solved, it's never resolved. They never catch the person, they never find out anything more than they knew at the beginning. I am guessing that the reason why everybody loves these mysteries is because they're solved. Because we see it come together at the end. We see it kind of um, resolve at the end. And there is something, I believe, and maybe, maybe you feel this way too, there's something distasteful about unresolved mystery. Um, imagine all your episodes, your favorite show, favorite movie, Favorite Scooby-Doo episode, they never actually figure out who it is. Remember, you guys remember, who's over 40 and remember Scooby-Doo? Remember how they always pulled the mask off at the end? You know there's a template to that whole thing. You can figure it out at the beginning. It's the first nice person they meet. Always. Doesn't matter if it's the dad, the mom, the president. Doesn't matter. That's who's done it. Sorry to wreck Scooby for you, everybody, but... But if all those things were unsolved, we would lose. Now, I, wanna, I bring that up and I point that out because um, I think that we see the same thing happens with God. What happens when we discover an unsolvable mystery or an unanswerable question with God? I think a lot of us find it frustrating. We ought to be able to solve the, uh, uh, the mystery about God. We ought to be able to answer the question. And when we don't, when someone else's prodigal child has a come back to Jesus moment and ours doesn't, we're kind of like, I don't understand how that happens. When someone else's child recovers from what sounds like a terminal illness and ours doesn't, it's hard to answer that question. Why is that the case? Why is some people experiencing this and I am not? And our response, just want to throw this out for you, our response to those mysteries that we experience, unanswered questions, unsolved mysteries about God, is a great indicator. Our response is a great indicator to the genuineness and the realness of our faith. Our response. The only way to overcome belief is to know God. So here's a question for you. How can we know God? When you follow along the Christian faith, you start to understand God through the, through the Bible. We come to, uh, to, to understand God as a God who is perfect. He has no imperfections. He's infinite, limitless, beyond our even what we can imagine, and He's good. 
That's what the Bible tells us. Perfect, uh, infinite, and good. And answering questions of how we know that God is perfect, infinite, and good is one of the greatest tasks of Christianity. How do we know that? How can we prove that? How can we show that? So many of those who refuse to commit their lives to God do so because they don't see the evidence that God is perfect, infinite, and good. They don't see the evidence. So they say, you know what? I'm either deconstructing my faith, I'm leaving my faith, I'm abandoning my faith, or I'm not even starting a faith in your God because I can't answer those questions and you can't answer those questions or there's no real good explanation for those. They do not see God this way. Now, in the enlightened, progressive world that we live in, if they believe in God at all, they see Him as subservient, right? Think about somebody who's progressive uh, or enlightened in their thinking and they say, well, we have an understanding of God and somehow they have pictured a God that is subservient to what they picture or uh, what they desire. Uh, He's subservient to their understanding. He's subservient to... Uh, the human rules of logic and justice and fairness. God fits into all these descriptions of their justice and their fairness and what they believe to be as logical or even moral. So that's how generally our culture defines God. God has to fit into all those things. And if He does not abide by their framework for understanding, He's either not good or He doesn't exist. Does that sound right to you? If He doesn't fit what someone has already pictured or described logically and so on, then, it's, then for a lot of people in our culture, He doesn't exist. can't really exist. Um, and He certainly, if He does exist, can't be good. And Christians then take on the burden of answering these questions. Um, let me ask you this. How many of you have ever been in a situation that you can remember where you had to try to answer somebody's really, really difficult question about your faith? Let me see if you're out there. Who's, anybody ever have to answer those questions about their faith in some way, shape, or Or you feel like somehow, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but you're feeling like, uh-oh, I better come up with a good one here because this person's entire belief in the existence of God depends on my answer, right? It's a lot of pressure. And we can feel that way for sure. We carry that burden of explaining the questions about God's infinite existence or His perfection or His goodness. So how do we learn to do that? Let me give you a couple of words real quick. We learn to know God primarily through revelation and relationship. Revelation and relationship. So many Christians struggle to explain how we know of God's character and we lean too um, much on a CSI method. CSI method would be gathering evidence, inspecting the data, coming up with um, some kind of analysis, and then providing proof. That would be the Christian's version of of trying to um, figure out how we know God. And other people treat their personal experiences, that's like the end. That's like, I had this experience with God, so for me that settles it. And then they somehow believe that their experience is the recipe for everybody else's experience. It's available to them, or they ought to experience it that way. What's missing in this explanation, CSI method of the personal experience recipe, is relationship. What's missing is, uh, and we mentioned this last week where I contrasted knowing someone in relationship is in contrast to knowing about somebody. Knowing about somebody is different. A lot of us Christians get sucked into the trap of just knowing a lot about God, but we have very little interaction on a personal level and a personal relationship with God. And only in relationship where you discover the essence of someone's character. And I mentioned this. I mentioned when if you have children, you drop off your child to the babysitter, the babysitter comes over and you're about to leave 
uh, for the day and leave them in their care, you probably don't say things like, well, here's some things I want you to know. My child is four foot one. They have blonde hair, very, very cute, rosy cheeks, and they're going to be dressed in clothing. Right? You don't describe what you know about your child. You start to say, here's what I know. When you're trying to feed them, they're going to pull this stunt on you. They're going to pretend this, and they're going to try to get away with that. In other words, you've had personal experience with them, and you know who they are. You know why they do what they do. And you can even warn a babysitter, don't go for that whole, oh, I'm sick to my stomach, so I can't finish my vegetables trick. Shove them in there. You can do it. But it's all through knowing them, and in knowing them, the essence of their character, you find yourself knowing them more and more through connection with them, and the same is true with God. You can't just know about God. We can't just, we're not going to come to belief where we're, 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 we're with this faith, this transformational belief if we just know about God. When we're in relationship with God through the Bible, through His Word, right, where we see that the Bible becomes more than a book. When you're in relationship with God, the Bible comes alive. The words come alive to us. It becomes personal. It speaks to us, and it reads our hearts more than we read it. How does that happen when we're in trusting relationship with God? Often the Bible is read like a textbook or I like to say like a reference book where you're like, uh-oh, I've got a situation. I'm going to need to get some, um, a, a little bit of reference or a little bit of information. We pull the book off the shelf and we kind of look up some stuff and then put it away until the next crisis or until we need to um, solve the next challenge. And for other people, they read the Bible like the chicken soul for the soup. Is that still a thing? Do you remember that? Chicken soul? No, chicken soul. That's not right. That's not right. <laughs> Are you laughing with me or at me? Chicken soup for the soul. You know why I know everybody knows that? Because everyone's bought a copy, evidently. There's like seven gazillion copies of that have been sold, every version of it. Anyway, so what does that mean? It means some people read the Bible lo- looking for just a little bit of inspiration, right? And, that, and I'm saying that's all. Only a textbook or only chicken soup for the soul? Not enough, not how it's supposed to be read. In fact, the Bible is also not just a storybook telling stories of um, some kind of um, moral lesson for us to hold on to and live by. What if we're in relationship with God? When we're in relationship with God, we begin to see the Bible as revelation, where God has given us something to reveal Himself. And the the Bible is not primarily a roadmap. It's not primarily a storybook of morality and fables and fairy tales. It's not primarily a reference book, and it's not primarily a little book of inspiration. It is the creator of the universe who has opened our eyes to see who He really is. And the Bible comes alive to us. Like this is not an ancient, forgettable doctrine that's irrelevant. We begin to see it as a revelation, like a window in who God is. Check this out. The way He wants us to see Him. Not the way that we want to see Him. The way that He wants us to see Him. To see exactly what we need to know of Him. So, you get to start. And if you haven't really gotten into the Bible and you're just starting to get into the Bible, some people will say start here. Some people will say start there. Some people will say start, start other places. I think that there's so much wisdom in starting with the Gospels and just learn who Jesus is. 
Just discover Jesus as He's presented in the Gospels. Get to know Him. Look for who the real Jesus is, not the version that you inherited from your family or the version that you saw on TV that's represented by some tribe or cult or whatever. See Jesus. Discover who He is. And often what somebody's missing in all their familiarity with Scripture is the personal, powerful connection with Jesus. That's what they're missing. It's just a book, just pages, just words. So, we see the Bible come alive. God's character starts to become clear to us. We start to understand His essence. And before relationship with God, the Bible can just seem like an ancient book of statements that we're going to weigh and we're going to say, are these statements true? Are they not true? And really what we start to discover when we have relationship with God is we see all these promises about God's character and His nature. But there are things that we still can't explain. Here's what we can't explain. The infinite about God and about His character and about His essence The infinite is inexplicable. The infinite aspects of God is inexplicable. God's God's infinite, His infinity, I'll get it, His infinity stretches limitlessly, supremely, get this, beyond our capacity to understand it. Have you ever studied, any of you ever study the brain, the eye, the spine, other things about the human body. Raise your hand if you've looked into it deep enough to say, that took my breath away. Raise your hand if you've ever, you've looked into it deep enough, just a few of us, good. Let's meet together. A few of us are going to meet together to talk about how amazing this is. God has created the human body and is breathtaking the way that everything works, right? His infinite power, His omnipotence, His, his absolutely infinite knowledge, which is called His, his omniscience, His infinite presence called His omnipresence, unbelievably inexplicable. We can't put human words, we can't possibly speak of it well, much less understand it well, but that's how God explains Himself to us. That's what He reveals to us about Himself. We are unable to even imagine that God has perfect motives, that God has a perfect plan. He has perfect knowledge of all things, past, present, and future, all at the same time. There is not one thing that is known that has not... um, begun in the mind of God. Imagine that. I can't. I short circuit a little bit. God Himself is infinite. So, um, we've never really encountered perfection, so it's hard for us to take that in, right? It's very difficult for us. We don't go anywhere. We're kind of inclined to mistrust in God. I mean, you think about it, um, even when we get our first child and people start telling us, your baby is... I've seen a lot of babies. Your baby's perfect. Anybody ever, anybody ever hear that about their child? Most of you are like, mm-mm. We knew, we knew right from the beginning. This little baby's so perfect, so beautiful, so precious, but then we've nicknamed the whole phase of life when they turn two. And we start to see that humans are depraved, and we call it the terrible twos because our child wasn't perfect. They're just, just playing a game. They're just, it's, all a big, it's all a big charade, and eventually we see what comes out of a human is imperfect. It's terrible, twos. And um, you think about this. Even in our weddings, right? In our weddings, we put our best foot forward, and then we say, a part of my wedding here is someone I'm going to call my best man. Anybody ever think, that's your best man? That's it? I mean, I don't mean to be critical, but that's it? That's the best man you got? Right up in the, 
Teasing, of course, but that's a good example of how our best and even our infant, perfect infants eventually become, we, we see the depravity. We are not good with perfection. We tend to mistrust perfection in one another, in our kids, in our coworkers, in human beings, and especially we mistrust the perfection of God, I think, my opinion. We have a difficult time with that. The infinite is inexplicable. This means the vast majority of what God does, get this, is outside of our ability to explain it. What if our God is so infinite that the vast... I mean, let me slow down. Imagine the vast majority of what God does we humans aren't even able to explain with our limited words and language. What if that's the size of God? What if that's the magnitude of God? That not only do we have trouble understanding God, we certainly have trouble explaining God. Here's one example. Have you um, come across this yet? NASA has a new telescope. What a great new toy called the James Webb Telescope. What a new toy. If you get a chance to look this up and this kind of thing interests you, then this, this is amazing. This is emerging stellar nurseries. Nurseries for stars that are beginning to develop and emerge. Seen in clarity, in unprecedented clarity by the James Webb Telescope. These are also individual stars, right? We see individual stars, but then we see a cavern of this gaseous state that's developing stars. Stars are being born in that. And if that's not mind-boggling enough, in these cosmic cliffs, it, which looks like a three-dimensional picture, you can see those jagged parts that look like a mountain. Try to get your mind around this. The tallest peak in this mountain, which is not a mountain, it's just gas, is seven light years high. Try to get your mind around that for a second. Just a quick second. Don't take too long on that. You're going to lose your, your mind. Little jagged mountain. Some of you are like, you know, I've seen documentaries. People climb those mountains. Seven light years high is where there's this gaseous, there's just one. This is just one single little space of time, and the tallest peak is that tall. So consider that, and then I want you to contrast that to you and I trying to sit with somebody who's struggling with their faith and try to explain, well, let me tell you a little bit about how you can understand God. Not that, I, not that we shouldn't do that, right? Apologetics is so helpful. But I just want our church family to really grasp what we're doing. We're trying to say, I've got these tiny little human words that we've created, and I'm going to throw them at you, and when we're done, you're going to be like, whoa, really? That's what God is like? We can't do that. It's inexplicable. The, this, this kind of thing, I don't know how scientists do this. I don't know how one scientist looks at that and goes, man, it's amazing how that Big Bang created all that. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they do that. It's, it's, it's so incredible. The secular humanists and atheists they say that we can discover how this was created, and if this is not true, this is probably maybe a weak version of what, what they might believe. But a humanist and an atheist might say, we can discover how this was created using science. And I like to think we can discover that this exists using science, but how it was created. In the Christian faith, we say this, I don't know how it was created, I'm not sure evidence is going to explain how it's created, but we know who created it. We know who created it. We have an intimate knowledge that God has revealed to us about who's created it. And His infinity, His infinite character and essence is inexplicable. Can't get our minds around it. Only faith, a belief that leads to action, has the power to transform our heart to accept this infinite reality that God does things like this and did things like this. 
and expands and blows our minds like this. So to our limited, tiny, grain of sand human brain, as magnificent as it is, the infinite, infinite is inexplicable. It cannot be explained. Um, we cannot explain how an omnipotent good God brings things about. We don't know how it's possible that God brought about evil. How did a good, infinite God bring about evil? How did God take evil and fit it into his plan? Any answers? Anyone? Anyone? How is it possible that God found a way in his infinite wisdom to say, here's evil, I'm going to put it in my plan somehow, and I'm going to use it and leverage it for my purposes? And we're like, Oof, that's hard to explain. It's a mystery, right? It's an infinite mystery. So, how do we react to this kind of mysterious God? First of all, there's culture's response to mystery. Culture has a response. What does culture say? Well, the Enlightenment thinking brought about the idea that man is the center of the universe, right? That um, really, the highest life form is a human being, and all of life revolves around it. But the fallout, of course, is that somehow now we get to invent who God is. The fallout is that whatever people want God to be, and for many that means that God doesn't exist. For other people it means that God is just a kind of a small version of what they wish or hope or um, expect Him to be. And they see the lack of empirical data, which I'm like, empirical data? I mean, how much more do you need than an infinite galaxy of, uh, not galaxy, but universe? They lack empirical evidence for God, and therefore, without the evidence, God doesn't exist. That's what we get with the Enlightenment thinking. That's what our culture. Now, there's another response, too, which is the Christian's response to mystery. And in my experience, I've done plenty of this myself, Christians live in a period of time where it's countercultural to have a God that's beyond our understanding. It's countercultural to say, well, those are some things about God's character and essence that I just, it's inexplicable. So, unanswerable questions about God are the reasons that so many Christians are deconstructing their faith, not ever really um, taking a leap of faith. They simply cannot reconcile what they believe about or what they understand about God, what they don't understand of God, or some of the discrepancies they see in the world around them. So, how do some Christians respond with forced answers? Um, in other words, I think the church has created some forced answers to justify God, and we have to be so careful that we don't force those answers ourselves. Why do bad things happen if God is so good and He's all-powerful? That's a good question. Don't quite understand it. And sometimes we say, well, every bad thing, and this is not untrue, but we say, well, every bad thing has to do with sin and corruption, the condition of the fallen human race, and that's not wrong. Or we might come up with, um, you know, these disasters that are happening. I've heard this from the Christian community too. These are evidence that God is bringing judgment. And then I'm always like, well, why is he judging that state or country or county and not my neighbor? I'm just kidding. Or the rest of the, the, the world that's doing such evil things. Or other people emphasize that even while these terrible things are happening, God is compassionate with the victim. He, is, uh, he cares for the victims. And again, while that's true, it doesn't fully answer the question, well, but why did that tragedy even happen to begin with? And so I just want to put our minds on this for a little bit. Sometimes, even though the infinite is inexplicable, we're trying to force some answers that aren't always satisfying. And it's okay if you're not satisfied with those answers because they're human answers. They're limited in their scope, and they're limited in their ability to, to, to bring satisfaction. And the church isn't always comfortable presenting the answers we don't know. I think there's a lot of things we can say that we do know, but eventually I think 
it's hard for us as God's church to say we don't really know. So, and don't forget, it's easy to present truth to the mind and never persuade the heart, isn't it? Anybody? You don't have to tell me, but some of you probably heard the truth in your mind for a long, long time and it didn't persuade your heart for years. And then eventually your heart's like, oh, ooh, this is getting truer. This is getting truer. You've always known it, but then something's happening. Transformational belief and faith is starting to happen. So what does the Bible say about mystery? Well, there's Bible's, the Bible response. So I just want to show you real quick the Bible response. There is a lot of small, meaningful passages that will help us understand God. But did you know that there's an entire book that gives us a view of God that most of us have moved on from? We've seen it. We were amazed by it. And then we were like, let's go on to the next chapter in the, or the next book in the Bible because this one is no bueno. Me no likey, this one. Well, you know what we're going to do today? We're going to dive into me no likey this one. We're going to look at the book of Job real quick, real quick. The book of Job is built around the question, why? Job, who is found righteous in God's sight, experiences these incredibly painful, life-altering experiences because God allowed Satan to sift him. And God takes Job's possessions, kills his children, lets him fall ill, and the first 37 chapters is Job and his friends trying to come up with some answers as to why this happened. The biggest one being, Job, you've got it. There's some kind of sin, my man, some kind of sin. My guy, you've got to repent and you've got to come clean. And yet we had already noticed in the beginning that he said, Job, God said, this is, I'm going to present, I'm going to let you sift a righteous man named Job. He's not being punished for sinning. So then, we're introduced to a series of questions. Why did God allow all these tragedies? Why would God allow Satan to torment Job, who's a righteous man? Anybody ever thought that question before? Don't, not quite tracking with God here on why he would do this. What does it mean about God's character that he would allow this to happen? Well, in the book of Job, God answers these questions. And in his answer, he gives us this answer. Here's what he basically says, and then I'm going to show you how he says it. He basically says to Job, this is so off-putting for most of us American Christians. Here's my answer. I'm God, therefore, guess who's not? You're not. My favorite part of the book of Job, this may not surprise some of you, God is wildly sarcastic. 37 chapters of Job and his friends trying to sort out with sincerity. And then God, with his, in his infinite sarcasm, in chapter 38, God starts to respond to him. This is amazing. But they were not answers that Job was looking for, and they weren't answers as we readers are expecting him. He does not explain in satisfying ways. Rather than answering Job's question, God spins the questions back on Job. And... He describes his power, his magnificence in this blistering sequence. Here is how God responds. He asks Job stuff. This is just the starting point. Look what he says. Then the Lord answers Job over his questions. He talks to him through a whirlwind. I mean, that's the first sign of trouble, in my opinion. And he says, who is this? The questions. I've got to warn you, this gets me so fired up. I mean, I gotta, I'm just going to warn you, okay? 
Not doing this on purpose, but God is looking at a human being and He says, question, who is this that questions me? And this is for somebody. This is for somebody out there who's struggling, I think. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you. And you must answer them. Now, here's where it gets unforgettable. Check this out. If you've seen this, it's going to be familiar to you. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Oh, that's a rhetorical question. Don't try to answer, Job. I have more for you. Tell me, if you know so much, who determined the earth's dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? Who did that? Oh, don't answer that. That's a rhetorical question. i got more questions for you, Job. I'm going to do this questioning of you for four chapters. Four chapters, I'm going to answer the question that you have for me with questions for you. And there's so much more. He goes on and on and on. He says stuff like, what supports its foundation? Job, tell me, what supports its... Oh, here's another question. Who laid the cornerstone of the earth? As the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy, who did that? Then he's got more. I love this. Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb? And as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness. And then the Lord says to Job, Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and cause the dawn to rise in the east? You ever done that? Hmm. You haven't, have you? Hey, everyone. This guy. Over here. This guy. Where were you? Did you do that? You didn't do that. And God questions Job like this on and on and on. And then, are you ready for the sarcasm? Where are my sarcastic people? I brought this up before, but this is proof that it is a godly character. It is a godly trait to be sarcastic. Check this out. But of course, Job, you knew all this. These last four chapters when I was describing all of this incredible detail of the universe, you already knew this. For You were born before it was all created, and you're so very experienced. I mean, so condescending a little bit, right? Like, holy condescension. It's amazing. It's amazing. Is the Lord done? No, 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 no. Chapter 40, the Lord's not done. Then the Lord said to Job, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? We still doing this? Is that what we're doing? We're going to keep doing this? You are God's critic, but do you have the answer? Listen, church family, sarcastic, a little bit amusing. We have to hold the book of Job deeply in our hearts. God's answer to the mystery, I'm God. You're not. You won't get it. You won't understand it all. You won't have to question my love because I'm going to prove my love with the death of an innocent son of mine who was not guilty but is going to take on your guilt in your place and absorb my wrath. You're not going to have questions about my love. You're not going to have questions about whether or not I'm present because I'm going to give you a Holy Spirit who's going to bring the peace of my character to you and is going to teach you about my Jesus and is going to elevate Him in your own heart so that you can have affection for Him and adoration for Him. You're not going to worry. I'm going to be present with you and you're not going to worry about whether I I love you. But most of the other answers about who I am, inexplicable. You're not going to get it. 
And I just, I just cringe at the idea, church family, that one of us buckles up underneath God and raises our fist up and demands some answers for him. Now, I am totally cool, and I think it's wise for us to be honest with God. But there's, what's the word? There's a level of honesty that eventually stops at reverence. You know what I mean? Like fear. At fear. And here's my hope. My hope is that when we look at the book of Job, we we go, oh, my heart's getting soft and small. Soft and small. Not um, irrelevant to God, not unlovely to God, not um, less value to God, but less in glory and less in stature to God. And so now Job responds to the Lord. Do you want to see what I mean? Want to see what Job says? What can Job say? What can Job say? How crazy if Job started to shake his head. Wouldn't that be nuts? That'd be bananas. Like Job, he's literally, he's off, right? It's not what he says. Look, look at this. Then Job replied to the Lord, I, after all this, realize I'm nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand because I don't trust my heart. I'm just going to cover my mouth with my hand. I'm going to, remember this one? Anyone have any parents that did this before? What does that mean? Zip it. My parents used to go zip it and then they do this like throw the key away thing like forever? That's it? Then he says, I have said too much already. You think? I have nothing more to say. And I wonder if that resonates in our hearts, that there are times where we get before God and we just say, I'm going to close my mouth. I, um, I don't have the right answers. I don't quite get it. Your, inf- your, your infinite character is inexplicable, and I have nothing more to say. I don't know what else to say. By the way, this is the least modern American thing someone could say, right? In modern America, we say... Listen, express yourself, man. Speak truth to power, my guy. Let the Lord have it. Piece of your tiny little brain, let him have it. Right? This is so un-American for us. But Job got it right. He saw who God was. Or rather, he saw enough of who God was to realize that God was and forever will be the infinite, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God who is so inexplicable. So, um, what now? Real quick. Grow to thrive in the mystery. Let yourself sit in the mystery of God and grow to thrive in relationship. And you do that by knowing God more, more um, deeply. When you know God more deeply, your comfort comes through growing close to God and trusting His character and learning of His character through the Scriptures and reading the Bible, consuming our Bible. And then what we discover is that we learn enough about God to trust Him and we can thrive in the mystery in the areas that we don't have the answers, right? Isn't that true for a lot of you who've been doing this a while? We learn enough that we can trust Him for the things that we know about His character when we come across questions and and challenges that we just don't understand. We say, but I trust His character. I know who's doing this. I don't know why, but I know who. And then secondly, dwell with Him more peacefully. What does that mean? I understand how to find peace with God. And it's through what He's done for me. It's what He's expressed to me. His steadfast love never changes. 
My life is full of turmoil. The world is hard to understand, but His steadfast love never changes. What does that mean when you focus on His steadfast love? What it means is that you're sweetening the bitter mysteries with the promises of God, that He's present, He's with us, He's for us. And we sang it this morning. He does all things and eventually works them out for good the way that He sees it. It's good. This means that every time a friend or a loved one makes a self-destructive decision, every time someone rejects the hope of the gospel, we will ask when and how and we might be greeted with God's silence. But just as God has presented us with mysteries, He's also presented us with promises that we can hold on to, we can count on, and He always, always, always always keeps His promises the way He intended to and the way He intended them. And we are given mystery and we are given promise in the same revelation that God has revealed. They're both true. Both mystery and His promises are true. And as long as we're in relationship with God, we live and we get to thrive in both the mystery and in His promises. Would you pray with me, church family? God, we're grateful for this time together that You've shown us that a part of our belief is resting in the unknowable. Thank you for revealing enough to us to know that you love us, that we can rest in the peace that you provided for us and to us. And I pray for our church family, God, every single man, woman, and child who's wrestling through unanswered mysteries. I pray that their heart would become more tender to who you are. Smaller and more humble when we approach you. But also honest, bold, loaded with reverence and gratitude. That sometimes the answers don't bring much clarity. What you tell us isn't clear, but who it is that's telling us is clear. We rest in that, hope in that, rejoice in that. And now we're going to sing together about it. Church family, would you stand and sing? We're going to sing about all the assurances that we have. Not all of them, but the the assurances that we have. God is going to bring to our hearts.